Hello and welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's Talking Africa program. Talking Africa provides in-depth interviews with experts and other actors in the field of peace and security in Africa. Hello, I'm Desmond Davis and my guest today is Jennifer Salahab, Senior Program Officer, Safe and Inclusive Cities at the International Development Center, Research Center in Canada. We're, we're, uh, Jennifer, we're here in Nairobi to uh, look at the result of the uh, Safe and Inclusive City uh, Research Program. How has that worked out? Delightfully. Thank you for having me, Desmond. It's a pleasure to be here. So the, the program um, is, has come to a close or is about to come to a close and uh, we have um, 15 research projects that have done research over the over three years from 2013 to 2016, um, all trying to understand the drivers of urban violence and how they relate to poverty and inequalities. And I think we're, we're seeing some really compelling results um, at the program level. So looking across all 15 of those projects, we have findings um, that are challenging how we understand social cohesion and how it works to both reduce and facilitate violence, in particularly in um, highly unequal societies. We have uh, results that are telling us um, we need to be paying more attention to how masculinities develop and, and how men understand what it means to be a man and whether that involves violence or peace. Um, and we have a whole range of results that are speaking to the need for um, improved and more inclusive urban planning processes in places as diverse as um, Ahmedabad, India, San Jose, um, Costa Rica, and Chile, uh, sorry, Santiago in Chile. How were the cities selected? The cities um, were selected because they were proposed in um, the, the projects themselves. So uh, an open call for proposals was run at the end of 2012 and um, researchers from three regions of the world, South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America and the Caribbean were invited to propose um, projects that sought to, as I say, identify um, the drivers of urban violence and then also what works and what doesn't to prevent and reduce violence in cities. And so um, it was up to the researchers. How many cities were involved in Africa? In Africa? Oh, good question. Um, overall, we have more than 40 cities, and I would say probably about half of those are in Africa. Oh, I see. Yeah. So what, what are the standout findings for the African cities, really? For the African cities, I think some of the most compelling findings are coming from South Africa, where there were two interventions that were tested or evaluated. Um, one of them is a public employment program run by the South African government through the Department of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs. It's called the Public, Public Works Program. And this is a really simple program designed simply to um, help reduce poverty by providing guaranteed income. Um, so it's 100 days of work a year at a very low salary, just sort of just about to bring people just above the poverty line. And researchers at the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation in, based in Pretoria and Cape Town um, initiated a study to, uh, that has very promising findings that in addition to reducing poverty, this program can also have very positive knock-on effects in terms of um, reducing violence. Yeah, actually one of the major problems in these urban settings is to do with housing. But ironically, I was just reading about the recent report in, in Canada about the problems too of uh, 
accommodation that I mean uh, is a major problem in terms of some houses are too big, some others are too small. So I mean, uh, can you relate this with your problems in the, the south? Yeah, no. I, one of the things that I think is most interesting coming out of this whole research program is lessons for the north from the global south. And I think that on issues around um, the need for affordable housing that is accessible to the most marginalized populations, so whether they be um, women, youth, uh, and sort of all the intersections of, of different types of people, single um, female-headed households or single parents, um, people who are visible minorities, that sort of um, refugees, all those, all those um, vulnerable populations, um, I think, is is really compelling. Um, During the conference, they mentioned the extrajudicial killings in Nairobi by the uh, the police force, and most of these people, those people who were killed were young men. So, um, how do you then reconcile that gender-sensitive policing with the uh, extrajudicial killings of young men? Well, globally, we actually see that men, young men in particular, are both the, the vast majority of perpetrators of violence, but also the vast majority of victims, at least when you look at homicide, at, at um, fatal violence. And so this is exactly doing that, asking that question about how do men and women and different genders experience violence differently or experience policing differently or... Um, have different needs based on their gender and their so the social roles that they perform to to be a man or a woman um, is exactly about that's, that's exactly what you need to be asking to be doing gender sensitive policing. So I think in the in the case of um, extrajudicial killings, you know there are undoubtedly a number of other reasons for why those are happening that um, don't have to do with gender, but some of them do. And so I think you, one needs to um, ask those questions so that an, a, a response can be appropriate. So it may be that there are ways to speak to youth who are the victims of those crimes um, and through their through sort of accessing and talking to them about what it means to be a man, find alternative pathways that are removing them from that harm, well, at the same time, very importantly, and, and not at all to suggest that there's not a problem with policing if extrajudicial killings are happening. Well, as the IDRC itself has noted, I mean, uh, the research into urban violence has been mainly in the north. So how did the researchers themselves in the, in the south start? On what basis were they starting? Because since they have not done that much research in the south on urban violence and inequalities. Yeah, so I think that um, all of our researchers are experts in their in their field and we have a really wide range of, of sort of disciplinary perspectives that are contributing to this program. So we have colleagues, I have colleagues who are working on these issues from a public health perspective in terms of violence reduction and, and a particular project in Cape Town um, that seeks to reduce violence or prevent violence through urban upgrading initiatives. At the other end of the spectrum, we have urban planners, and sort of in the middle, we have a mishmash of different um, social scientists, anthropologists, sociologists, political scientists, geographers. Um, and so they're all um, coming at, at this question of urban violence from their different perspectives. So research in Ghana, for instance, is being done by a team of geographers, and so they're trying to understand how poverty and violence fit together in different spaces of four cities in that country. Um, in, in South Africa, 
uh, research in Cape Town is being led by public health specialists who have been collecting trauma data from local hospitals to understand and then mapping it with GIS systems, global information systems, to sorry, geographic information systems to um, to identify where are the hotspots and where is the greatest need and, and then to see the impact of a very um, geographically specific intervention. Yes, your policy brief did say that, I mean, there's the research has thrown new lights into certain issues and they should, it should be taken forward. What's the next step? So the next step, um, well, within our, our team at IDRC, certainly we're exploring new avenues for research and have already begun to build on the results, particularly on youth in our research programming with partners in, in developing countries in the Global South. Um, and then beyond that, what we really hope is that the research continues to influence policy and practice. I mean, the, that's the ultimate objective of this program is to try to help make cities safer and more inclusive. And we're already starting to see some very encouraging results. So in Cote d'Ivoire, um, the, the research has helped identify um, a, a means to help to reduce violence by bringing, making youth feel more included in society and providing economic opportunities for them. Um, in South Africa, the community work program that I mentioned earlier, um, the research team at CSVR are partnering now with government to implement a second phase of that research that will pilot a program, a training program, that if it's successful um, could be rolled out to all, I think there's more than, there's 186 um, implementation sites, so, so program sites across South Africa reaching more than 200,000 people. And so if, if that was able to, to bring about a reduction in violence in all of those communities and 186 people, 200,000, sorry, in 186 sites, 200,000 people, you know, we could see really significant impact. Yeah, you see, because I mean, talking from an African perspective, it's all well and good to talk about these results and findings but the African governments themselves, the African politicians themselves committed to, to changing things. Because once you come to the political aspect, these are the same people who used to, to commit violence on their behalf. Certainly, and governance reform is and, and holding um, states accountable is a is a really important part of that. Um, you know, our approach is to work with government um, to, to help them improve, and IDRC has a very strong capacity building um, mandate, which is really focused on domestic researchers. We work with partners in, in the countries that we're working with um, to help them develop their skills and help them open doors so that their messages about how to find solutions to these problems can be heard by the people in a position to do so. Yes, I note that uh, in one of your briefs you said that uh, social cohesion is different in the North from the, the, the South. What are these differences? Sure. So in the North, um, and, and I'm not sure that they're that social cohesion itself is different, but the way that it manifests, so the way that it presents is, is different because of the, the structures around that. So in the North, we tend to have much more egalitarian, economically egalitarian societies, at least, with certain exceptions, and I would argue, you know, in a different conversation that that is changing. Um, but research from places like Chicago has shown that um, in individualized societies, and I think that's more the, the important part, is the individualistic nature of, of kind of life in the North. Um, when we increase social cohesion, when there's more social cohesion, 
there's more engagement with the community and this helps to um, reduce crime and violence. In places like South Africa, in Cape Town, or Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, or um, the, the um, sorry, I'm blanking on the name, <laughs> in places like Santiago in yes, Chile, um, what we're seeing is that social cohesion does not necessarily present in the same way that it does in the North. It High levels of social cohesion can do the same thing that they do in the North. They can contribute to community groups coming together and working together for the common good, but they can also um, lead to things like vigilante justice that, and the same extrajudicial killings that, that you mentioned in, in the last, um, just now. And uh, yeah, so, so these sorts of things are really important for programming that just seeks to build social cohesion without thinking about how to direct that, uh, those community bonds in a way that is healthy and productive for the community rather than just seeking to, to make them more connected. Well, yes, actually in the North, I can understand social cohesion and, and how governments themselves allow people to take charge of their own destiny. But in, in, in Africa, more or less, governments want to be in control of everything. How does that work? Well, I think it's, I don't know that it's about governments being in control of everything. It's about um, using the existing social bonds and the different conceptions of the individual in society. So, I mean, Ubuntu, for example, this yes. idea that we are human through others in South Africa, I think is really telling. And so, um, which we don't have in the global north and, and certainly is not something that I ever grew up knowing being a Canadian. Um, and so... So it's the idea of using that, that, those connections and directing that, creating the structures and the space for that to be used in a positive way for the good of the community rather than in a negative way that, that privileges gangs. I mean, if you think about gangs, there's really a lot of tight social cohesion and sometimes even familial bonds within those groups that they, you know, people have each other's back, they're taking care of each other. Um, outside, sometimes outside of a family structure or replacing a family structure. And so those, but, but the um, result or the impact of that, the way that that um, social cohesion amongst those people is translated into action has very negative effects, sometimes deadly for them and other people. And so I think government's responsibility in this regard is, is not necessarily to create stronger or, or less or weaker social cohesion, but to facilitate existing social cohesion where it, where it is and direct it in, in ways that are much more um, positive and, and can help bring about positive change. You are listening to Talking Africa on the ALC Pan-African Radio. Stay tuned. Uh, welcome back. Uh, my guest today is Jennifer Selahab. Senior Program Officer, Safe and Inclusive Cities at the International Development Research Centre in Canada. Yeah, I think you also have a program called the uh, Governance and Justice Program. I mean, what, 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 is it linked to the Safe and Inclusive Cities project? Sure, without getting too much into the organi <laughs> organizational structure of, of IDRC, yes. um, Safe and Inclusive Cities is a, a program initiative, what we call a program initiative of the Governance and Justice program. So I work with, um, I sit within the Governance and Justice team and I have um, anywhere between six or seven colleagues who are working directly on Safe and Inclusive Cities with me and our partner researchers in, develop in, in the Global South. Okay, I mean, also, I mean, you, you've done this, you funded it in conjunction with DIFF in the UK. 
How did that work? I mean, is it working well? It's working brilliantly. Yeah, yeah. We have a very strong partnership with DFID. Um, the relationship is such that uh, IDRC is the managing and implementing partner, and so we use our strengths um, in terms of our network and our relationship with partners, researchers in the Global South, and our capacity to um, be able to, to kind of um, in a very close way, follow the projects and work with researchers, um, which is quite unique for a, for a funder in some ways. Um, and I, yeah, and, and I just think brings about amazing results. In fact, I recall um, one of our Safe and Inclusive Cities research teams in the introduction to, to a book that they produced, um, this was the team in Central America, noted that the, that the IDRC program officer who had worked with them felt like the fifth member of their team. Yeah, well, uh, by the same token, I mean, taxpayers in, in the North are saying that, I mean, why are you spend money in the South when there should be, although they themselves have problems within their own cities, how do you sell it to a uh, British and uh, Canadian taxpayers, the project? Sure. Um, I mean, I think there are a number of ways to sell it. There's an altruistic um, perspective to take that, that you know, we have a responsibility as, as wealthy citizens to be contributing to, to the world. Um, but I also think there's a, there's a business case to be made and a return on investment, very economic argument to be made that if we develop the capacity of these of our, you know, our fellow humans, and on this on this journey, on this, you know, little blue dot in the universe, um, to to solve their own problems with their own solutions, um, then I then you know that helps make a safer world for everybody. I remember being at our um, re we had a regional conference in Dakar late last year, or no, sorry, about more than a year ago. And, uh, and one of the um, participants who just happened to be the outgoing um, or the about to retire director of programs for UN Habitat, Aliun Badian, mm -hmm. made a very forceful claim in, in his words, if I recall correctly, that we need African solutions for African problems. And that's exactly what IDRC hopes to facilitate. And we feel, and, and I believe our partners at DFID feel as well, though I don't want to speak for them officially, um, <laughs> that, that there's a you know, that, that we can make a very modest investment and reap um, very rich rewards. But surely, I mean, African governments should be funding some of this research because, I mean, it's in their interest to do it. Why don't they want to do all of these things? Really? I mean, I think that would be a question for them. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, Africa themselves complain that uh, the, dependent, the dependency syndrome has, is inhibiting development because, I mean, governments should be proactive in Africa rather than wait for... Uh, outsiders to come and tell them how to deal with internal uh, problems. Sure, and that's and but it's exactly that piece that IDRC is hoping to facilitate. So IDRC doesn't come and say you should, as IDRC, you should spend your money in these ways. We're providing funding to domestic researchers, so to Kenyan researchers, not in this program unfortunately, but um, in other in other ways, um, in other programs, um, to South African researchers, to Zimbabwean researchers, to uh, Congolese researchers in DRC, to Ivorian researchers and Ghanaian researchers and South African researchers, oh, sorry, Mozambican researchers, that's the last one on the continent, um, so that they can come up with, they can do solid independent research that is based on evidence and then develop recommendations for how to improve policy and practice, whether that be government policy and practice or non-government policy and practice. And 
advocate for those solutions themselves within their context. And IDRC, we see our role much more as opening space, um, creating, excuse me, using our good offices and our networks internationally so that those voices can be heard at a global level. I understand that, but do African governments understand that? Because I mean, urbanization is gonna create a major problem for the continent in the next 10, 20 years. Uh, African governments prepared to tackle this major phenomenon. Do you think? I mean, I think that, the, so I think there are two questions in that. So let me answer the first one. So the first one about, you know, are African governments listening? I think so. I mean, Desmond, you participated in the conference that we held in Nairobi this week, and we had several representatives from both municipal and national governments yes. participate. So I think that, and they stayed there for three days. Yes. <laughs> um, and so I think that that demonstrates a, a willingness and an engagement. Um, and, and an openness to hearing and wanting to, to work in partnership with, with researchers to find solutions and implement them. The other example that I would give is in South Africa where, um, yes, absolutely, the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation wanted to get their research into the hands of the responsible government departments in South Africa. But at the same time, I think the response from government was was surprisingly positive and, and in some ways overwhelming. The government, um, the Department for Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs in South Africa actually requested of CSVR that they be, that they co-host their um, final conference to demonstrate that they had endorsed the findings of this research. They wanted their logo on the yes. final products. I, I think it is a unique project, don't you think? I do. Yes, because I mean, uh, this study has never been undertaken before, so I mean, it should help the cities of the South, really, those that are serious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, and I think the fact that it was, um, so there have been other projects that have looked at similar issues in the past around urbanization, but nothing that is really at this, that, that, that nexus of urban, urban violence, poverty, and inequalities. And, inequalities yes. and, and nothing that, um, that was of this scale that put Southern researchers in the driving seat. But of course, I mean, it's a no-brainer, I mean, if you're a government minister or whatever, that if you create an, an enabling environment, the, 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 uh, the violence will also reduce. So, I mean, why, don't they, why haven't they taken it up before? Well, I think that, <laughs> one of, so one of the things that really came out for me out of the conference was this idea of connections and complexity. And I think that these are really challenging, challenging problems and they're very context specific. And so, you know, you, you pull on one thread in a knot to try to see if you can undo it. And sometimes it gets tighter and sometimes it gets looser. And so I think that, um, you know, governments are trying to identify which, which threads they can pull on that will make the knot looser and not tighter. And while at the same time trying to look at the rest of the, the fabric around that to make sure that in pulling on one thing and making that knot looser, you're not, not creating new knots in other areas. Um, so all of those sort of social linkages and, and um, connections, I think, make it really challenging. So maybe that's a bit esoteric and, yes. and high level. Um, let's, let's bring it down to something much more concrete. So you heard um, Walter Craw from Cote d'Ivoire talk about yes. his research, which looks at artisanal transport hubs. So in Kenya, that would be mutatus and, and the places where they collect to, to pick up passengers, um, mutatus and bodabodas. So Walter in Cote d'Ivoire has done a whole bunch of, uh, you know, three years of research, talked to a wide range of people working in, in and around these hubs. And 
um, it's very interesting the the findings that he's found. So he's developed sort of an, an organogram of how these hubs, how the social relations in these hubs are organized. So there's uh, somebody in charge, and there's a whole series of kind of almost militaristic um, hierarchy that results in in young boys or ends in at the lowest level with young boys who are used to um, find passengers for drivers, but then on a daily basis, but then are also mobilized as a fighting force to take over other hubs around the city to try and, so there's an economic incentive as well, so that the people who control that hub can can amass more territory and increase their their wealth. Um, Walter talked about at the same time, there's, uh, so, so you have an economic problem, a violence problem. These young boys are largely socially excluded um, and, and sort of living on the street or living as a gang without much adult supervision. They're often involved in drugs, whether that be um, recreational drugs or drugs as part of kind of mystical preparation for fighting. Yes. And then um, there's a political aspect to it as well, because as Walter was explaining to us, the there's a sort of a, a disincentive for politicians to do anything because at moments of political crisis, the politicians can mobilize mm, that kind of, yes. yes, this informal army yes. to enact um, political violence on their behalf or, yeah. So, so I think that there's multiple intersecting layers and, and there are no easy solutions. You know, Joan Close, the, who, who gave the keynote, who's yes. the executive director of UN Habitat, made, a, I think, a compelling argument that urban planning is one starting point. And certainly, I think that that can work in some places. But I think that once you solve the road network issue, there are other issues that, that will come about. And, um, and in some ways, it's not about, it's about managing conflict and hoping and, and trying to make sure that it doesn't turn violent rather than trying to get rid of conflict altogether. Yes, in fact, one of the recurrent, recurrent theme of the, of the conference was to stop the, the urban sprawl and to build upwards. Yeah. How would that work, really? Um, I mean, the idea is that you want to bring people from informal spaces into formalized spaces so that you're able to provide those services that um, some of the research has shown, the research that focused on this question has shown is really a, both a manifestation of or an example of um, structural violence, so deprivation, marginalization, um, exclusion from political and decision-making processes, but also is can be a trigger for physical interpersonal violence. Um, so things about questions about bringing people into, um, sorry, making sure that people have access to water on a regular basis. The problem is that you can't do it halfway and you have to think about how you do it. So I remember being in Mumbai visiting, um, Mumbai, India, yeah. visiting one of the projects there and they had been doing exactly this. There was, we visited a site where there had been slum upgrading, as they call it. Um, there was still a very sort of low level, low level meaning not very tall, so one story, yeah. two story buildings slum informal settlement that was there with really poor drainage um, you know very limited running water and sanitation facilities public toilets and then next to it were these i think four or six say 12 story tower blocks yeah. which would have each had on each story um 
four, I think, apartments. And what we heard, we, we had the, the privilege, really, of sitting down with one of the residents um, in her apartment. She invited us into her apartment and um, had her explain sort of the challenges that they were facing now that they had moved out of the slum. So in the, in the informal settlement, um, with a much smaller household footprint that you know, was very rudimentary, there was a, a blurring between public and private space. So inside and outside, the, your front stoop, or what you know in Canada I would call your front stoop, so the mm -hmm. space in front of your house was very much part of kind of your living area. And so you were interacting with your neighbors much more and creating that social cohesion yes. that you know that means that everybody has each other's back and we're looking out for one another and watching children and 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 caring for elderly people. Um, and then when they were moved into these tower blocks, that 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 um, interaction on a very regular basis was removed because now you're only perhaps crossing paths with people as you go to the stairs sort of on the landing with maybe three other families and, and not as frequently as opposed to when you, you know, were, when your front lawn or your, your living room led onto your, the space no, in front of your house, there was much more interaction. Yes, you're right about that because that's a major problem in Africa because people want the space to, 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 to live in and to just move about. You cannot send someone to skyscraper and stay there all day and all night. They will just feel rather as if they're in prison. Yeah. So and so so it's so again I think this comes back to the need to find solutions that will work for the particular context. Uh, Jennifer Sellerhope, senior program officer of Safe and Inclusive Cities at the uh, International Development Research Center in Canada. Thank you very much. Thank you Desmond, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Talking Africa and ALC Pan-African Radio. For these and other programs, please visit our website at alcpanafricanradio.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at African Leadership Center. For feedback on these and other programs, please send an email to info at africanradio.com.